0: So I'd like to start out the sermon this morning by sharing about a woman whose story resonates with me and whose story might also resonate some with you. I learned about her from a mentor of mine. So I have a mentor who I talk to once a month. And a few months ago, she said, you know, I have a childhood friend who is a lesbian rabbi who I think you and your congregation would really enjoy. Her name is Rabbi B'nai Lappi. And so I started um, looking into her work. She's got a great TED Talk, if you like TED Talks. And I think I found some resonances or some echoes in the work that we do. So I thought I would share a little bit about her this morning. She's a professor of Talmud at the Hebrew Seminary in Skokie, Illinois, which is a suburb of Chicago. And she also founded and runs a yeshiva. And a yeshiva is just like a seminary for Jewish people who want to become rabbis. And she grew up Orthodox Jewish, which would be considered one of the more conservative strands of Judaism. And as a teenager, in the late 70s, early 1980s, she realized that she was a lesbian, and she felt like that conflicted with her conservative reading of Torah that she grew up with. And so heartbroken about this seeming incompatibility between her faith and her sexual orientation, she packed her bag, she moved to Japan, and she went to study to become a Buddhist monk. While she was in Japan, she ran across a Jewish rabbi. Now, how many Jewish rabbis there were in Japan in the 1980s? I don't know. But there were at least one. And she met with this rabbi, and this rabbi said something that really spoke to her and that made her think, you know, this is who I am. I'm Jewish. I love Torah. I don't want to let that part of me be taken away just because there are elements of my culture and of my childhood faith that are really deeply precious to me. And so she moved back to the United States and she attended yeshiva and she was in the closet as she did that in the early 1990s. And then after she graduated, she went out and she started a radical queer yeshiva that she calls Savara. Now, hang on to that word. I'm gonna come back to it in a little bit. But Savara is a seminary now that's in Chicago and it's now known internationally and Rabbi Lappe is recognized as one of the most influential rabbis of her generation. Now, Rabbi Lappe would say, that what happened was her master story crashed when she came out to herself in her teenage years. So she says, everybody has a master story or master stories that we live with that help us make sense of who we are in the world, how we want to live, how we want to live in relation to others. And she says, you know, every religion offers a master story or stories. America has these stories. Atheism has a master story and so on. So every master story, Rabbi Lappi says, eventually crashes. I might soften that just a little bit and say every master story eventually gets significantly challenged. At least I think it kind of depends on the situation. But every master story will some, cause some kind of significant cognitive dissonance in our lives at some point. And so Rabbi Lappi's crashed when she came out to herself. My master story first crashed not when I came out to myself, but earlier than that. When I went to college and I studied science, and my kind of super fundamentalist relationship with the Bible started to not work for me anymore, because I liked the scientific method, and I thought the theories of evolution about climate change all seemed reasonable and viable, and so that wasn't working with what I had been taught. I would guess that if you're here at Blue Ocean, you've probably had a master story crash at least once, maybe more, maybe two, three, four times. I've probably had a good three. So our stories crash when either something significant occurs, like it could be a big event. I was thinking like for many Catholics, I think the exposure of the widespread sexual abuse of minors among the priests was a significant event that crashed a lot of people's stories. So it can be an event or it could just be that you realize that something inside of you has shifted and the old answers just don't seem true anymore. And so master stories can last a long time, but even the really compelling ones eventually get challenged, both on the personal level as well as in sort of the longer arc of history. And so Rabbi Lappi, she says, there are three possible responses when our stories crash. The first option, deny the crash, stick with the original story. You can stay in the current system of belief, don't challenge the parts that you disagree with, And maybe just live in a way that's not fully integrating who you are with the story that you're living with and supporting. And there are times and seasons to do this. I was thinking about people who maybe live out tiny, rural America, your theology becomes really expansive, there's literally nowhere to go to church but maybe that one place. And so you just choose to do it because you want community. And you get the benefits then of staying in the system, but that usually comes at a personal cost. And that cost... Depends on myriad factors, right? Other people just deny that the crash has happened altogether and they just really stick their heels in and they dig into the master's story. They build walls up around it. They fortify it to make sure that no information can get in to challenge it, right? It's defended at all costs. I think we've seen that a lot in different parts of religion as well as education. If you've been following what's going on down in Florida, it's kind of like defend the master story of white supremacy. Don't let any challenging information get into the educational system, right? Dig in. In Christianity, this is what Phyllis Tickle would call corner dwelling. And she predicted that as the Christian master story started to be challenged, or continued to be challenged in our times, this includes Protestant, Orthodox, and um, Roman Catholic, She was like, look, the authority of the Bible and of scripture is being challenged in the Protestant tradition. The authority of the popes in both the other traditions, Orthodoxy and Catholicism, are being challenged. And she says, as this happens, a not insignificant number of people are going to react by digging into their denominations, drawing lines around who is in and who is out. And she has not been proven wrong. And she passed away in 2015. And already at that time, she was kind of surprised at how quickly that was happening. Right, so option one is dig in. Option two is to accept the crash and reject the story. Walk away, jump into a new story. And so this is what Rabbi Lappi did when she moved to Japan to go study Buddhism. It's what I did in my early 20s. I just decided to be agnostic slash atheist. And it's perhaps what you've done at a certain point in your own story. So most people, when their stories are challenged, they go with option two, they just do. And I don't judge that. There are times when that is survival. But Rabbi Lappe would caution us that all stories eventually crash, even the new ones that we jump into. So there's not really a story out there that's like 100% amazing and we just have to find it. So there's a third option, option three. Keep the story and innovate. So in her words, this is a quote, challenge the systems, break the rules, get pissed off, end quote. She said, do that, knowing that not every innovation is going to stick, but with the knowledge that eventually enough of it is going to come together and coalesce in this process of evolution, something new will be created from it. So options one and two, digging in and rejecting the story, both of those assume that stories either can't or won't change. But option three recognizes that all stories are able to and, in fact, must adapt and evolve. And when things break down, those are the times where we have an invitation to growth, right? That's the invitation to sort of expand our thinking, to open our arms a little wider, build a longer table. I think it's an invitation to courage and to maturation. So option three, to quote Rabbi Lappy, she says, we can accept the crash, embrace the crash, Go back to the tradition, take what works, mix the old with the new, create a new radical tradition that will eventually be unrecognizable to many who lived before us. And that's okay, because that's how life pushes us forward. Any master story, if it's going to be helpful, needs to be able to adjust to different times and places. And this is what happened to Judaism after the fall of the temple, and this was in 70 CE. This was just 30 years after Jesus was put to death by the Roman Empire. Rome came in, ransacked the city of Jerusalem, and they just left it in ruins. And so at that point, for the Jewish people, option one wasn't an option because the temple was gone. Nobody could just dig their heels in to what was then the current master story. Because the Second Temple Judaism that was practiced in Jesus' day required the temple building, and it required the priestly system of sacrifice in order to function. So the master's story had just been obliterated by Rome. No option one. At that point, most Jewish people chose option two. And historical records tell us 90% of people just walked away from their faith and blended in with the Roman Empire. That was an astonishing number to me. I thought just 30 years after Jesus was put to death, 90% of his people left their faith tradition. And if Matthew is to be believed, Jesus saw this coming somewhat. So is Matthew 24, 1 2. Jesus left the temple and he was walking away when his disciples came up to him to call his attention to its buildings. Do you see all these things, he asked? Truly, I tell you, not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. And I think Jesus wasn't the only one who saw that his faith tradition wasn't going to hold up in its same form. The way worship went on at the temple wasn't working for a significant number of other people in Jesus' day as well. And so they were already innovating. They were already doing some things that were a little bit different on the margins. And I see Jesus as one of those innovators. There were other innovators, and they included the Pharisees, who were interpreting Torah in these local synagogues. And they included the Essenes, who went off into the desert, and they were doing this sort of monastic-type community. It included other itinerant rabbis like Jesus and his cousin John, John the Plunger, John the Baptist. It's actually it's more literally John the Plunger, which I just love. <laughs> the master story wasn't working for them. And so they were sort of these outsider misfits whose messages were actually resonating with a lot of people. And it was this group of innovators who went on to create a faith, you'd say faiths, that would be unrecognizable to their great grandparents. So if 90% of Jewish people left their faith after the the destruction of the temple, that means 10% stayed and reimagined the tradition. So if you're Jewish today, As a couple of you here are, I don't see Lisa Ruby today, but she might be online. Hi, Lisa. Unless you're a convert, but if you're Jewish, it's probably because your ancestors were part of the 10% who chose option three. They were the innovators. They were the ones reimagining what became what is today rabbinic Judaism that is now like the norm. And they did it by doing what Rabbi Lappe called mixing the old with the new. So they took parts of their tradition that were helpful, and then they created some adaptations. So instead of needing a temple and an animal sacrifice system, prayer took the place of sacrifice. And several local smaller synagogues, which were already a thing right, in Jesus' day, those took the place of the temple, and rabbis interpreted Torah, not the temple priests. Theologically, this group started to build in mechanisms into their theology that let Judaism become more flexible so that it could be more easily survive some of these future story dissonances. And they said, you know, you only have to have a couple of things to become a rabbi. It's not lineage, it's not a PhD. They said, you need two things. These are on your sheet if you're looking. Gemirna and Sevirna. So Gemirna just means to be learned. You need to be committed to study and to learning. Sevirna means to possess moral intuition. And the moral intuition was seen as equal to Torah. So Torah is the first five books of the Bible. It's called the law in Judaism. In other words, they said if something in Torah was seen to be doing harm, a rabbi could use their sevirna, their moral intuition, to reinterpret or even overthrow or trump Torah. And the root word of that word, sevirna, is Svara, which is the name of the yeshiva that Rabbi Lappi started, moral intuition. And she says savara is rarely taught because in a time of enormous change, like now, it's happening both in Judaism as well as Christianity, she says concepts like savara that make radical change possible tend to get suppressed precisely when we need them the most. And so I see this parallel in Christianity and in some of the things we're trying to do here. It's why Ken and I wrote Solus Jesus, was to help us try to reclaim savirna in our tradition, right, because Jesus was Jewish. He practiced Sevirna. He quoted Torah. He said, you know, you need to love your neighbors as yourself. And that has to be the guiding ethic under which everything else falls, right? If our moral intuition tells us that something isn't translating as love of neighbor, then we need to reconsider it. Our moral intuition trumps the weaponization of scripture. And I think we need this tool right now as Christianity and its master story evolves, So I think Jesus also saw that this mixture of old and new in his faith tradition was what was going to be required. There's this verse in Matthew 13 that's along those lines that we'll read in just a second. But throughout that chapter, that's a chapter that's worth looking at, Matthew 13, it has Jesus telling a series of stories or parables about the kingdom of God. And he's, he's doing it in this time of incredible change, and so he's trying to instruct people on what to look for as God is moving in those tumultuous times, right? So in these stories, Jesus is talking about the messiness of the faith that is changing. And so he compares God's good, God's good realm to like seeds that have been scattered onto different kinds of soil, right? You probably are familiar with that story if you've been around the church for a while, right? Scatters the seed, some of the seed gets eaten by birds, some of the seed doesn't get enough water, some of it gets strangled out by weeds, and then some of it is good and healthy. And he explains this story to his disciples by saying, you can't always tell who is going to understand what God is up to. It could be a surprise to find out who or what proves to be fruitful. And the seeds of God's good realm might land on people that you suspect might not bear anything good at all. And then all of a sudden, surprise. It turns out that was the good soil after all. And then Jesus tells another story in that chapter. He talks about how weeds and wheat grow up together and early on you can't tell the difference between them. And then he says there's like, like fishermen who are going out and get a big net full of fish and some are good to eat and some are not. And so they're trying to sort them. But he's saying, you know, it's not our job to do that sorting because we're not equipped to do it. So he's warning them, don't judge people because only God is the one who's able to judge what is happening. And he says, that doesn't mean that we can't name things that are actively harming people. He did a lot of that. But it's a caution about our human ineptness at judging other people's hearts. right? It's like, don't get too self-righteous. Be cautious if you are apt to labeling or, excu- or excluding others. If you're apt to like pulling the weeds out of the ground and saying, you don't belong here, you don't belong here, this fish doesn't go here. So you can't tell. And then there are other stories about not disregarding things that seem small. And Jesus says that, what God is doing in the world. It's like a little tiny mustard seed that might surprise us by growing into a significant tree. Or it's like a little tiny bit of yeast that can make a whole bread loaf rise. Or it's like a little treasure that you might not even think is a treasure and it's buried in this really large field. Or a nice pearl, a teeny tiny pearl in a big field. He's like, both of those things are small, but they're so valuable that they're worth selling everything else you have to obtain them. So in other words, in all of these stories, he's just saying, look, how God works might surprise us. Small starts might yield major results. Don't judge people along the way. It makes for messy community. It makes for some messy theology. But just trust that God is at work in this world, and God is going to take care of it in the long run. So Matthew 13, 51 to 52, he says, have you understood all these things, Jesus asked. Yes, they replied. They always say yes. And he said to them, therefore, every teacher of the law who's become a disciple in the kingdom of heaven is like the owner of a house who brings out of his storeroom new treasures as well as old. So what I see here is Jesus is describing this messiness of option three, right? Accepting the crash, go back to the tradition, take what's working, mix the old with the new, create a radical new tradition. And to do that, you have to be a little light on your feet, you have to be willing to try some things, you have to be willing to fail, you have to be willing to see what works. (laughs) That's where I told Susan, I was glad you were here in person today, she has a saying that I have really, um, it's been helpful to me, we have to keep our eyes open to what's breaking down and what's breaking in right now, right? Because there is a lot that's breaking down, but there's also a lot that's breaking in. And so I think in this series here, we're going to be talking about some of the things that are happening on the margins of our faith tradition that I think just might be some of those innovating ingredients that are shaping a Christian faith that's gonna be a little bit more vibrant and healthy down the line. I wanna leave you with a quote from Rabbi Lappe, and she's saying this about Judaism, to be clear, Um, but I think it's, it's very true for us as well. She says, if you're going with option three, you're the future. Hang in there, hang on to your queerness, Hang on to your otherness. By queerness, she uses that in a much more umbrella term, even though she is queer. The people for whom the system isn't working. She's like, hang on to that, because that's where your savara comes from. That's where your moral intuition is. She says, most of your fellow Jews aren't going to be following you. Most of your fellow Christians are not going to be following you, and that's okay. That's how it works. The faith that you create might not even work that well for you, but in time, it will get thicker, And it will get better, and it might just work for your grandchildren. And I don't know why that, like, chokes me up. I don't even have kids. But I have nieces (laughs) and nephews. And so I found that really encouraging, and I'm looking forward to these next few weeks of exploring what that looks like. Because if you're here, this is how I see our congregation. I've always said that. It's like, you know, there's these little sprouts that are coming up as a lot of Christianity above. I think some of the more toxic forms are, the word is diminuendo in music, kind of coming down, but there's other things that are exciting that are coming up. So we'll talk about those. All right, so we usually do a little bit of quiet or meditation, and I thought today we all just going to spend some time in silence. And I thought in this space, maybe you could just be invited to think about times maybe when your story has crashed and how you've responded to that and any invitations that you feel in this space. So I'll let you know when that time is up people make noise. I don't mind if it's a little noisy, but just Holy Spirit, just be in this space with us. Holy Spirit, we thank you that you're at work even when things feel messy or tumultuous. We thank you for encouragement that even just like the small things that are happening can actually be part of the fermentation process of something new that is bubbling up. We ask that you would give us eyes to see where you're at work in the world, that we can be in relationship with other people who are also Um, in this process of sort of cross-pollinating and and doing this work. We want to preserve what is precious in our tradition. Um, We want to preserve our ability to have relationship with our Creator in a way that is healthy and is helpful to us. So Lord, show us how to do that. We love you. We look to you for guidance. Amen.